rest of you, and happy Mother's Day. Um, I'm Jama Raubach. I'm a partner here at Mercy View, and we are reading from Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Uh, my name is Trey Hopkins. I am uh, on staff here at Mercy View and uh, excited to get a chance to open God's word together this evening. If you got your Bibles, just leave them there in Romans 15. That's where we're going to spend our time this evening. Tonight we're moving into the second to last chapter in the book of Romans, which means that this multi-year journey we've been on through this book is coming to an end. It's kind of bittersweet. It's, it's bitter because it's a really great book to be walking through, and it's sweet because it means that we've almost made it to the end of this just magnum opus that Paul has as he lays out what it looks like to believe in and follow and live out the Christian life. Believe in Christ and follow that out. Over the past few weeks, what we've been looking at is what the Apostle Paul has to say about what we often call Christian liberty. This recognition that there's things in life that are important enough to have a debate about how practicing or not practicing them impacts the Christian life, but they're not so significant that faithful Christians can't hold varying positions on the issues and still be faithful to Christ and faithful to the gospel. That's what Romans 14 has been all about. That's what Romans 15 here at the beginning and into next week's passage is going to be all about. And here what Paul is doing is presenting to us two types of people. Those with weak faith and those with strong faith. If we look back at Romans 14, what we see is that Paul spends a lot of time addressing who we could call the weaker brother. He spends a lot of time, and, and the way that he sets up his argument, he's, he's wanting to show us that in this context, the brother that he has in mind is pretty clearly the Jewish Christians who are coming to faith in Christ and bringing with them some of the things that would have been a part of their old life as they were in Judaism. Their faith is weak, not in terms of their ability, uh, of its ability to save them, because saving faith is a gift from God. It's not something they muster on their own. It's not even weak in terms of how they're being sanctified, because that's a work of the Holy Spirit that's taking place apart from merely the effort they put in. Their faith is weak in the sense that their conscience is being bothered by the way in which some of the people around them seem to have the freedom 
to break some of the ceremonial laws related to the old covenant that they're no longer under because they're in Christ. And a lot of the traditions that had been built around those throughout the centuries. They don't have the faith to see the scope of what Jesus really accomplished for them on the cross as he fulfilled the law and the prophets. And so they only eat vegetables because meat could have been ceremonially unclean. Maybe it wasn't prepared the right way, or maybe it had been sacrificed to idols. And their conscience is bothered because their entire lives, they haven't been able to do that. Why would you do that? Maybe they're careful not to take too many steps on the Sabbath so that it's not looking as though they're working. They're wanting to honor God by keeping that day holy, and yet the Gentile Christians among them are going about their day on Saturday. Yet they're claiming to worship the Lord. And there's some friction that's building up because of this. And so Paul's taking some time to address it. And he's saying that these areas, they're debatable. And for you and I tonight, these kind of gray areas don't seem all that gray. Like, you might be in here and be convinced that being a vegan is the right thing to do, but it's most likely because you're more concerned about how animals are treated and the fact that you can't stomach maybe an animal being killed for you to be able to eat. Or maybe you're a little worried about the amount of carbon emissions that cows put out, and so you're, you're convinced that being a vegan is the moral right thing to do. But it's not really because you're worried about them being sacrificed to idols. Maybe, I mean, there's a lot of different opinions, even among folks in our tribe on what it means to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy now that we are Christians. And I'm sure that there are multiple ways within this body that folks are looking at that. But I doubt any of you are concerned about using a Shabbat elevator when you have to go up a few floors on a Sunday or a Saturday. These areas were super muddy in the first century. And they're just not that muddy for us today. Paul pretty clearly lays out for us that the weaker brother he's directly addressing in this passage is the one whose conscience can't let him see the full scope of Christ's finished work in areas that he believes are now fully settled. But there's clearly room for disagreement that doesn't lead to disunity. And that's what Paul's concerned about when he's writing to the Roman church. And it's what you and I need to be concerned about today as Christians throughout the centuries have been. There is nothing more exciting for the devil and damnable for the church than disunity over things that just don't matter that much. It's not that they're not important. It's that they're not the main thing, which is what makes our passage tonight kind of difficult because as Paul pushes us toward unity, he calls on the strong to bear with the weak. And in his context, in Romans 14 and Romans 15, it's pretty clear that he's pressing on Gentile believers, Christians free from the burden of the law, to bear with their Jewish brothers and sisters whose consciences are still being burdened 
by some of these traditions. With those who in good faith and a desire to have a clear conscience can't cast off everything from the old covenant just yet. And it makes it difficult for us tonight because for you and I, the debates are far less clearly defined. Because many of the things that we debate and tend to divide over in the church today are opinions that are maybe and hopefully derived from Scripture, but they're not explicitly laid out. There's no apostle who's written you a letter to tell you that this is exactly the way that you should interpret this one hot-button thing. And so because of that, there are things for us that are actually a little muddy. To give an example, I came across an article from the Gospel Coalition this week from author Trevin Wax with the title, Please Don't Weaponize Good Faith Disagreement, which had my interest peaked from the beginning because what we're talking about or should be talking about tonight is good faith disagreement over secondary, even further down the line things. That's what we're unpacking this evening. See, one of the big questions I have is I think about this kind of secondary things that divide us as a church today and where this passage in Romans presses on each of us is who is the stronger brother in our context? Trevin has a couple of paragraphs aimed at some of the things swirling in the air the last couple of years that I think help us see some of the complexity and why that's a question in my mind. This is what he says. Easy labels play a big role in weaponization. Words like based or woke, progressive or right-wing, problematic or troubling, they often get deployed not because of theological disagreement exactly, but because we think others unwise, inconsistent, or just wrong in how they apply theological convictions to choices we face in today's world. And he lists four examples underneath that of some things that have, over the last couple of years, divided us. So he says this, She voted for Trump, so she's a right-wing fanatic whose approach to everything else must be suspect. And she's probably a closet racist. The church was closed for more than a few weeks, and the pastor encouraged vaccination, so they're obviously in line with compromised, woke evangelicals who are progressive. He expressed doubt about vaccines or the wisdom of school lockdowns, so he must be a gullible conspiracy theorist who doesn't love his neighbor or who harbors authoritarian desires. This author believes there may be human causes to climate change. So he's obviously liberal, or at least duped by the global elites. Faded from view are the detailed and historic confessions of faith that once marked out faith traditions and communities. So let me ask you this. In those four scenarios, who's the stronger brother? And who's the weaker one? My guess is tonight whoever you agree with and whatever you think characterizes you or whatever offended you because of the mischaracterization of your own view. That's who's strong and that's who's weak. That's how we respond to these things. What does Paul say in Romans 14, 22 to 23? We looked at this last week. He says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself, 
for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The last sentence there, whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin, leads me to this conclusion. It's going to help frame our unpacking of Romans 15, 1 through 7. Your assumption within the body of Christ should be that you are the one with the stronger faith. Even if over time it's proved that you're not. Assume that you're the one with stronger faith. Trey, that sounds a little conceited. No, it's faithful to verse 23. Because it's a confidence rooted in the faith you have in the Holy Spirit to prick your conscience. Well, won't that create a bunch of arrogant, haughty people who are always acting like they're right and never admit that they're wrong? It shouldn't if we're faithful to obey Romans 15, 1 through 7. And that's what we're going to unpack this evening. Look with me at verse 1. We're going to start here. The reason that assuming you are the one with the stronger faith doesn't result in arrogance is this. The strong have an obligation to bear with the weakness of the weak. This is how it's rendered in the ESV. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. If you heard me say, assume that you're the one with stronger faith and took it to mean always act as if you're right, I got some bad news for you. God expects more out of you if you are the one assuming the mantle of having stronger faith than he does if you're the one who recognizes your weakness. As he unpacks this sentence, we see Paul has painted the strong into a corner. The weak aren't given obligations. They're charged not to pass judgment, but they're not saddled with a burden. The strong are. He says the strong have an obligation. They're duty bound. He's using a word that would bring to mind for his Greek speaking here is what a borrower would have to repay as a part of a debt. He's saying the one who is stronger in faith has a debt that is owed. And who is that debt owed to? The one with a stronger faith assumes a level of responsibility and with it a burden of bearing. One of the commentators I read this week pointed out that the verb Paul uses here carries two similar but different connotations. And I think both of them are at play. One is how we have it read here, to bear, to carry a burden. It is a burden for the strong to, care, to bear with the weak. Think about a scene that I saw play out at the gym this Friday. It was, happened to be a day that I didn't have my headphones in so I could hear it and I turned around and saw it happening. And I was like, that's a perfect illustration. There was a kid who was trying to bench press that could not get the weight off of his chest and he's sitting there struggling and I see a guy who's bigger and stronger walk over and help lift the weight up off his chest and put it back on the rack. That is the strong bearing with the weak. It wasn't a massive amount of weight. In a sense, it wasn't a burden for the guy who helped him out. But in another sense, it was. He had to carry the weight that this kid couldn't. He bore it. In light of our passage, this would be the strong being called upon to help the weak in shouldering the burden of their own scruples, of where their conscience has them pricked that maybe yours does not. 
There's another way that the verb can be rendered, and that's this. It can be in reference to enduring or putting up with. A kind of patient endurance or forbearance in the face of immature attitudes of the weak. Which just makes me think literally of what it looks like to parent, particularly small kids. Like Brad just mentioned it a minute ago as we were reciting what we would do as parents. We would be patient with our kids. Listen, patience is required to be a parent because you're dealing with some immature people. By nature of who they are, they're young. I got a three-year-old and a six-year-old. It requires patience. And today mine's a little thin, right? That, that is how our lives go. Every day is a lesson in patient endurance or forbearance in the face of their immaturity. Be it the 50 times that you've asked them to pick up their room only to come in and discover that they've made a bigger mess than when you walked out a moment ago. Or the fact that they're refusing to eat the food that you literally gave them two days ago that they said they loved and now they said they hate it and they've never liked it. How much easier is it in these moments to do what Paul says not to do at the end of verse one and please ourselves? Do what makes us happy. We're irritated, and instead of patiently enduring, we just fly off the handle. We threaten consequences that make no sense, and that we would never enact because they make our job ten times harder. We raise our voices. We walk away and just ignore it because we can't deal with it in the moment. They might not look the exact same, but man, do these kind of scenarios play out in the body of Christ. The people of God are a mixed bag of mature and immature believers that have been gathered together with all sorts of backgrounds and places with scruples in different places than you. And so we're shown here that the strong bearing with the weak is a duty. It's an obligation, not an option. And I think the implication of the last verse of chapter 14 plays heavy on the first verse of chapter 15. In debatable matters, be convinced in your own heart that you're right and then live like this. Whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Be convinced and then decide to bear the burden. He's addressing the same need for unity in Philippi. And he's calling the church to be in full accord and of one of mind. The way they are to do this is to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. All because of the example of Christ. You see, that debt, that obligation that we owe for the strong to bear with the weak is because we are following the example of Christ, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He became a servant. He died on the cross, and though he was the strongest of the strong, he became weak. So the author of Hebrews can say that he's able to sympathize with our weakness. What Paul is saying then is this, because Jesus has endured your failings and weakness, You can endure the failings and weaknesses of those in the body of Christ that he's died for. 
We might not agree on who's weak and who's strong. But if you live like this, it'll produce humility. And humility will produce unity. You have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to gratify your own desires. The mature have an obligation to endure the immaturity of the immature because that is how Christ has acted toward us. It doesn't matter how strong or mature you think you are. You're not Jesus. You needed Jesus to have even an ounce of faith that you have for salvation, for sanctification, and for standing firm on your convictions. He has borne your weakness on the cross, and he endures with you in the midst of your immaturity. And so he's asked you to extend that same measure of grace to your brothers and sisters when you disagree on debatable things. And the strong don't simply have a responsibility to bear with and endure the feebles and foibles of our weaker brothers and sisters. Paul says we also have a responsibility to build them up. Look at verse 2. He says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We don't just endure the immaturity of the weaker brother, but we look for opportunities to build him up, to spur him toward growth. As we consider the broader context of chapter 14, part of that building up seems to include our willingness to forego liberty for the sake of their conscience. Take what Paul is calling us to out of caring for our brothers and sisters in Christ for a moment. And think about how much of the messages that you hear each day is opposed to anything that would call you to forego anything in life. Like most of us probably fail to see it because we're always being sold something when we're scrolling on Facebook. You got a smartphone, you've no doubt today scrolled past an ad related to something that you said in a conversation to a friend, right? Like that's just what's happened because your phone's listening to you. But I doubt that many of us are actually paying for Hulu without ads. And so you've probably seen some kind of commercial. And the way that that commercial has been set up and framed for you is not to sell you a product or a lifestyle. Not really. They're selling you a story that you sit at the center of. The easiest way to sell you something is to sell you yourself. To craft a story about your life with whatever product, experience, or lifestyle that makes you the hero. A story that shows your dreams fulfilled, your wishes granted, your desires never lacking. Yet what we're called to in the body of Christ is to move ourselves out of the center, out of the hero portion of the story. It's a narrative that runs counter to every other narrative in your life. And when in Paul's description of the story of the Christian life, he moves us toward assuming the role of the stronger brother, he's not moving us toward assuming the role of the hero. We already have a hero. And his name is Jesus. He's showing us that to live as the one who is stronger and more mature in faith shouldn't lead to arrogance, but to a far greater level of humility. The stronger believer, if they really are stronger, is going to be someone disciplined enough to know when their liberty would result in their neighbor's bondage. 
to understand that flaunting your freedom in the face of a friend whose faith is weak is a sign of serious immaturity. Their conscience doesn't allow them the license to enjoy what you call good. And it either causes what you call good to be thought of as evil, or it puts a stumbling block in front of them that causes them to fall into sin. Genuine strength, however, allows you to enter into another's weakness with joy. It allows you to encourage them as they strive toward maturity. That's what Paul says to do. We're to please our neighbor for his good, not our own. Then after showing us the example of Christ, he offers this short prayer. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Your desire should be to see those around you grow up into maturity. Not for them to get out of your way. Not for them to be a hindrance to your enjoying your liberty. Remember the situation from the gym that I mentioned earlier? The stronger guy helped the struggling teenager get the weight off of his chest. That's not where it ended. This is why I'm glad I didn't have my headphones in because I got to hear the conversation that took place. This guy helps him get the weight off and the kid's thanking him and he's like, oh man, I can't believe that happened. And the guy looks at him and he says, hey man, it happened to me last week. Like I had the same situation happen to me and had to have someone help me get the weight off. What is that doing for that kid in that moment? It's telling him that there's hope I can get stronger because this guy is, yet he still has weakness. And he still had to have someone help him lift the weight off. He still had to be built up. That kind of encouragement in the body of Christ, what does that do for us? It builds everyone's faith. And that's what we are called to. Spiritually, when we decide to endure the weakness of a friend for a season with hope that they'll grow and mature over the course of weeks, months, and years, we step into their weakness and we bear with their failure and we help them move toward maturity. Does that mean that in the end we all end up thinking the same way as the one who is really right and actually strong is revealed? I don't think you could remotely make a case for that. Because until Jesus returns, you're going to have people who think that you need to baptize your infant children, not dedicate them. And you're going to have those that don't, like us. You're going to have those who feel liberty to drink alcohol in moderation, and those who couldn't fathom the thought. You'll have folks convinced their kids should be in public schools because it's for the common good. And those who believe that their God-given mandate as parents is to raise and instruct their children in the way they should go, and that means they need to homeschool. Helping one another move toward maturity looks like helping them have charitable confidence in their own convictions. And here's where this helps us build unity in the body of Christ. If everyone walks in assuming that they're the one with strong and confident faith on secondary issues, then you walk in heeding Paul's charge to bear with and endure those that you don't agree with in order to see them mature. And if that's what's happening, everyone will begin to mature toward humility. 
No one in that scenario is taking their rightness to please themselves, but seeking to build up the family of God. And when that's the way that we're living, we're able to see the big reason why Paul places such a strong obligation on the mature believer. It's my last point this evening. Look with me starting in verse 5 where Paul begins his prayer and then down through verse 7. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why bear with one another's weaknesses? Why endure immaturity, real and perceived? Why lay down your rights and forego your liberty? Why choose to live in harmony rather than strife? For the glory of God. All of our endurance and patience and bearing with one another is rooted in the hope that we have in God and a desire to glorify him. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. That is the animating principle of the Christian life. We should always be asking ourselves in any and every situation, am I doing what I'm doing because I want to see God glorified? Individually, that's the case. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it well when it tells us that our chief end, the goal of our lives, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. However, living for the glory of God is a community project within the body of Christ. So we see in verse 6, Paul says we want to glorify God, but it's together we may glorify God with one voice. Unity in the midst of diversity is what the gospel breeds. Harmony in spite of difference. Peace instead of chaos. That's what brings God glory. If he is truly gathering in a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation for his possession, which is what his word says, to fill and subdue his new heavens and his new earth that he's inviting the body of Christ into, then you can bet there will be multitudes on that side of eternity that you didn't agree with on this side. Yet we endure. We bear with one another in the places we think the other is weak. All for God's glory and not our own. That doesn't mean we're not going to have Baptists and Presbyterians, Anglicans and Pentecostals in the here and now. We are. And in some sense, we should our differences on secondary issues shouldn't drive us further apart, but they should galvanize us around the things that really do matter. The death and resurrection of Jesus? I may disagree with my brother from down the street on what, when to baptize my kids, but we can gladly lock arms over the need for Christ crucified and raised to be preached so that men and women can come to repentance and faith. I might not think that you have to speak in tongues to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean I can't be strengthened and encouraged in areas where my faith is weak by my mama, who does. 
Thanksgiving and Christmas would get real awkward if those differences on secondary issues took the foreground. And I rejected the encouragement I could receive from the woman whose faith and her endurance and suffering is probably 90% of the reason that I have a faith of my own today. Because we disagree about that. Land the plane here. In his commentary on our passage, author J.V. Fesco says, regardless of what Christians might think about these issues, we must never attempt to build unity around these distinctives. It's a fool's errand. It would be akin to the strong in Rome saying, we'll build unity on the consumption of meat. Unity is not built on debatable distinctives. Unity is built only on Jesus Christ in spite of our distinctives. The church will never achieve any semblance of unity unless it is centered on Jesus Christ. The strong bear with the weak for God's glory. When we assume we're the one who's strong, obedience means that we will live with patient endurance toward our brothers and sisters in Christ who differ from us on matters of opinion. When we do this, our lives within the church are centered on Christ and his finished work, not on pleasing ourselves, and it builds us up in unity and gives us humility. May this be true of us here at Mercy View. Let's pray.